that. Hey, I just want to I just want to step back for a moment. I want to thank Amy for offering us such a powerful song and her own journey from isolation to community. So Amy, where are you? We just want to clap for you. We can start that right now. That was incredible. And I think we've all experienced, where are you? Where are you? Awesome. Thank you, Amy. It's amazing. She just said in our circle up, she just said, uh, hey, I've been reflecting on this isolation thing, and this has been the journey that, I, that I've been on. And that's where we all kind of learned, and, and she said, hey, four years of, of sobriety, I think she said today, which is just incredible. Just incredible. And it marks something, I think, not only for her, but for you and for me, where we find ourselves in this story. There's a guy named Jeff. He, uh, he lives, or at least lived, in New York City. Single guy, was in a relationship, and he got dumped. Totally out of nowhere. Didn't see it coming, which is often how it works when you get dumped. Uh, think back to the time that, or times you got dumped, I got dumped. It's like, it's absolutely no fun, and there's generally no warning that comes when you get dumped. This isn't like in business where you have, like, performance reviews, you know, or, you know, you're put on a performance improvement plan. I mean, at least generally you're not. It just, it just kind of happens, and, and if there's great courtesy, it happens face-to-face, but generally today you just get ghosted, or you see the person's, you know, social status change on Facebook or whatever it might be. It's like, this is absolutely no fun. It just feels like someone cut you off at the knees. Would you agree? Yeah, so, so Jeff, living in the metropolis of New York City, he's just like, I mean, what do you do when you get dumped? You know, do you just eat a lot of ice cream? Do you just like lob grenades on Twitter? Do you write love songs or sad Love songs like Snow Patrol uh, and its song. Or what, like, what do you do? Here's what Jeff did. Jeff took a scrap piece of paper, actually stacks of them, in New York City, and he posted this message all over town. If anyone wants to talk about anything, call me. 347-469-3173. Jeff, one lonely guy. This is in New York City. If Jeff came to you and said, hey, I got this idea. I'm going to just put this on every, like, telephone pole all over the city. What would you tell him? You're like, don't do it. Like, I mean, you'll become the next 867-530-what? The 309. I mean, we're in the 80s. Let's just stay in the 80s. What happened to that phone number? Everyone started calling and pranking and mocking and all those things. Like, Jeff, don't do it. You're just going to throw yourself out there like a raw piece of steak. So he did. One poll, another poll, another poll, and then one phone call, another phone call, and then pretty soon, by the thousands, people started to call Jeff, one lonely guy. And what were they calling about? Anything. They just wanted to talk. They weren't calling to mock him. They weren't calling to prank him. You see, it turns out that that they were lonely too. And this became quite a phenomenon actually, like by the thousands, and soon there was a book and a documentary, and because this is America, reality TV show was built upon Jeff, one lonely guy who found himself on this continuum from isolation. Ooh, it even is dramatic with drippage going on, all the way to being on this quest for community. 
By the way, this was over a decade ago. And uh, we could imagine that a lot of people, even more today, would probably pick up that phone and call if given the opportunity. I'm even curious for you, have you been in a stage in your life where you see a message like that? Well, I, I just might call because I'm not sure that I, that I have quite anybody in my life. Maybe you're there right now where you go, if I saw that message, I think I called Jeff. Because honestly, I don't know who I would call when I'm in a dark place, when I'm in a stuck place, when I'm in a fearful or in an anxious place. I'd, maybe I'll just call Jeff the lonely guy. And do you know that one out of every five humans on the planet suffer from what's called persistent loneliness? One out of every five, this is pre-COVID data, and the data for COVID is that it's even more pronounced, more severe, more dramatic, the statistic. We know that actually when you find yourself in this place, it's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That our physical bodies actually begin to break down. Over here, by the way, when we're experiencing community, we are, um, the data would say that we'll live 15 years longer than the average person when we are uh, connected in meaningful relationships. But everything short of that, we're prone to dementia, we're prone to stroke, we're prone to heart disease. All of our like physical uh, abilities begin to break down earlier when we find ourselves in isolation. Isn't that incredible? Something that's uh, pretty squishy. I mean, this idea of having a friend or not having a friend, being in community or being in isolation would actually cause your body to break down? Like, why, why is that? What's behind that? And where do you find yourself maybe on this journey from isolation to community? Let me give you a few stops along the way. I'd like for you just for a moment to think about it. Maybe one stop is, I, maybe I'm not isolated. I have acquaintances, if I can spell acquaintances right. That looks right, doesn't it? Close enough. Love it. Yeah, this is, you, you have interactions with people, skirmishes with a lot of people. They might know you, they'd recognize you, but you're living on the surface of things. Then another step along the way would be what C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves called club ability <laughs> or clubbableness. And it's this idea that you've got your watering hole, you've got your third place, you got your gym, you got your work, and people know you, you know them, and you talk about weather and sports and, and hobbies and, and things, and you go a mile wide, you've got a lot of people who know you, probably like you, but only an inch deep. And then there's this beautiful picture of community, where if you were to run away, someone knows you so very well. All the ins and outs, your personality and everything, they're current with you in your life, they'd know it exactly where to find you. They'd be able to retrace your steps because they're so connected to you. This is where you're known, where you're loved, where you're pursued, where you're connected, where at 2 a.m. you have a phone call to make and it's not Jeff. You know who it is. And they're that to you. 
and you're giving that kind of love, that kind of community connection away to others. It's overflowing from you. That's what this looks like. Where do you find yourself right now? If I just gave you these three stops, we know that one out of five of us find ourselves here. Would it be just at the acquaintance level? Would it be a little bit more than that? Still a mile wide, an inch deep, but you have a club ability about you. Or is it true community? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I do think it'd be helpful just to kind of allow X to mark the spot for you. Where are you on this journey from isolation to community? When I was given this assignment, I was, um, I was excited about it because it's a passion of mine. And then I thought, well, this is going to be a really easy talk because I've spoken on the concept of community probably hundreds of times. It hadn't been that easy. Uh, I was in a conversation with my daughter yesterday, and um, she said, in effect, she said, Dad, it doesn't seem like your friends reach out as much as they used to. I said, you're right, honey. Research, actually, I just, there was an article today. One of the things I have unfortunately had to make a practice of doing is before I get up to speak, I have to check the news because things in our world blow up all the time. You just wonder, is there something I need to know what's going on because you'll generally get it before I will. And the, one of the very first, the lead article in Apple News was, it was called the, uh, the Lonely Hearts Man, not the Lonely Hearts Club. The Lonely Hearts Man was an article on how men in particular suffer from loneliness. And in particular, in my stage of life, middle age, between the ages of 40 and 50, actually, the suicide rate for us as men is at its peak during that stage. There's a lot in the article, but a couple things caught me. And one was that um, men typically and generally, are lazy, it says, when it comes to relationship. We just soon let others do the relationship for us. We outsource it. I know for me personally that by raising a family and three teenage daughters and starting a business, that my focus has been on those things as the priority and on friendship and community as more ancillary. And so I just tell you the journey that I've been on is I've lived here for much of my life. I see myself as living here, but the reality is I'm right here now. So this hasn't been an easy talk for me. And there's uh, one friendship in particular where he's brought true, uh, held up the mirror to me. And we're trying to reimagine what friendship looks like here and now. And I wonder if some of you could join me in that. If you're a leader, by the way, either a, a male leader or a female leader, the drift for leadership is, is going to pull you towards isolation. It's a very lonely place to be a leader, a leader in any capacity within any organization or business. Because oftentimes you go, if I can't take it to the boardroom and I can't take it to the bedroom, then where can I take this? The burden, all the thoughts, all the questions, all the, will we make payroll? And what about our, you know, all the different questions that you're carrying? 
this can be a very isolating place. If you're a teenager, you fall prey to being virtually alone, not knowing how to do human relationship because technology, basically we've outsourced it to technology. And by the way, we all fall prey to that too. Do you have yourself marked here? Do you find yourself at least somewhere on this continuum? Why is this a big deal? Like, where does this come from? <laughs> like, what? How can something so invisible like relationship show up on MRI scans and uh, blood blood tests and 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 all the data like it does? Why 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 is that? Well, there's a few theories. I'm going to give you two from science first, and one is called the warning signal theory, which is just simply that through an evolutionary lens that this loneliness, this persistent loneliness that we feel is, uh, is actually a warning signal alerting us to an ache that reminds us that we've, we've strayed from the pack and there's vulnerability there. And so it's actually from this biological, physiological sense of survival, which I think is helpful. I'm not going to argue with it. feels a little too dystopian and Hunger Games-esque for me. <laughs> But maybe there's something to that. But the second one I think is even more interesting. And I've shared it before. It's called the polyvagal theory, which says this, and it's very compelling in its research, is that we all know there's a thing called fight, flight, freeze, and even feign, like act like, you know, like an opossum, you know, play dead kind of thing. Those are our survival instincts. And when under threat or uh, in, in time, in anxious moments in time, or when feeling threatened, we, we go to one of those. You, you either fight, you flee, you freeze, or you feign like it's no big deal, whatever it is. That, those are our survival instincts. And for years and centuries, scholars have, have looked at those and said those are our most base instincts of humanity. Like at our very core, that's what we are. We're ones who are in constant pursuit of survival and will do whatever it takes, whether it's fighting, fleeing, freezing, or feigning. Until uh, Stephen, doc, Dr. Stephen Porges came along, I believe in, oh, now I'm mis mixing up, I think it's either 2004 or 1994, so we can fact check that if you'd like. But he began to look at the parasympathetic system and said, there is something beneath that even. There's something beneath that survivalistic instinct that is the truest, most core thing to you and to me. And it comes from this uh, parasympathetic, kind of polyvagal, that's where the name comes from, but I'll just call it, there is a friend instinct in you and in me. That, are, that when we come out of the womb all like, you know, lathered up and goop, we're not thinking fight. We're not thinking flee. We're not thinking freeze or feign. You know what we're most seeking? Connection. That the deepest, truest thing to you and to me is a longing for this. Now, why do we not pursue that? Why is our posture with relationship like Well, it's when we get burned, when we're betrayed, when trust is broken. We move from this core desire, and that's when fight kicks in, and freeze kicks in, and feign, and 
flee kicks in. That's where from the Bible, it's blame, shame, hiding, and fear. It's all there and it all pushes us to here. But the core thing about you and about me is that actually researchers are finding what the scriptures have always pointed to. This is where I love where science just catches up to things that we've known for ages and aligns. Genesis chapter 2. There's this beautiful moment. I, I want you, we're, what we're doing here is we're going to go to the first moment of loneliness, like in human history. And it's right here. Chapter 2, verse 8 in Genesis. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Now I had never really looked at it this way. But surrounding all of this is like God taking springs and bubbling up and, and God having four rivers that are crossing and this beautiful and the rivers just have the, the, the most like effervescent like in color and there's gold and there's aromatic resin and there's all, I mean it's just absolute beauty and paradise. But do you see here that it says God put the man he had formed there in Subtext, alone. He's alone. God comes in, gives him some instructions. Hey, you can eat all of this. Just don't eat from this one tree. And I just picture Adam going, okay. And he's taking it all in. The birds of the sky, the reptiles, the, the, the animals. He's taking it all in, but he's by himself. He's experiencing outside beauty, but inner ache. And, and, and we're going to see this where it says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, suit, a helper suitable for him. Here's what's fascinating to me, is that this is before sin has entered into the world. And yet, Adam is experiencing this. I think that's important because loneliness is not a sin. Loneliness is an ache of our deep design. If you're feeling loneliness, it's prompting something in you, but it's nothing to be ashamed about. Because even Adam in paradise experienced it. He even also had deep purpose for his life. The purpose is, if we look further, God charges him to name all the animals. Now, I want to just read this. And what I think you'll see, the framework here is God says in the midst of everything that's good, 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 very good, there's one not good, and it's that man is alone. He's got no one with him to enjoy all this paradise. And so what are we going to do about that? Well, it says, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man, to Adam, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Do you see God right out of the gate gives him purpose, surrounds him in beauty? And that must have been a, a pretty cool exercise, right? It's like, think about all the cool names. Aardvark. 
Yeah, let's call that one an aardvark. <laughs> it's like, it'd be kind of cool. But, but here, here's what I see more and more in the text. This isn't just a naming exercise of the animals. This is a search party. And that deep within Adam, is there anyone like me? Is there anyone who could be with me? Is there anyone who thinks like me, dreams like me, wonders like me, carries the same kind of thing that I carry in me? And look how it ends. It ends just the very end of this, of this uh, verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Do you see that God makes this declaration? It's not good for man to be alone. He needs a suitable helper. And then he walks him through this exercise of all creation. Is there anyone there for him? And the answer is no. He's experiencing outside beauty, inner ache. And I wonder how many of us can relate with that. The outside of your life, beautiful. The inside of your life, there's ache. The Christmas family photos you're about to take, they're going to look awesome. What you post online, wow. What you're feeling here, I worked for a short time in Hawaii, four months. Everyone was so jealous. Like, you get to live and work in Hawaii. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was truly tropical paradise. One of the hardest four months of my life. I was pulled from community. I lived on an island all by myself. I was trying to date a girl. This is 25 years ago. Date a girl who lived in Baltimore. Don't recommend that. By the way, there was no FaceTime, just pagers. No bueno. And I'm there to work when everyone else is there to honeymoon. And the hotel walls are thin, let me tell you. <laughs> and I just remember uh, as this began to happen in that stage of my life, that there was an ache. I began to lose a sense of, of who I was. I experienced a sense of isolation that I don't know that I had experienced for a long time. And that helps me understand what maybe Adam is experiencing here. Everything's so beautiful. Why do I feel so miserable? This is, again, not anything for you to feel ashamed about. This is for you to know and for me to know that actually two things about this passage are really important and really true. Number one, why would God put this in you and me? It's because who God is. But see, God didn't want just this for us as the climax of his creation. God wanted to overflow to us who he is in his core. So if we look here at Genesis chapter 1, we see this beautiful little picture. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. Do you see the plural here? We've talked about it uh, not too terribly long ago. That there, what is going on with this plurality of us and our isn't God one. Yes, he's one. But within the one triune God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as we see, as it's revealed more and more in the New Testament, we see this beautiful affection, mutuality, interdependence between Father, Son, Holy Spirit that is absolutely stunning. And how Jesus, when he goes and out into the wilderness, who's he going to be? He wants to be with the Father. 
And the Holy Spirit is advocating for the Son. And there's this beautiful triumvirate within the one true God. Tertullian, the great um, early church father, would say, God is one, but God is not alone. Daryl Johnson wrote a book called Experiencing the Trinity. And, and he says this. I just think he names it. And this really opened it up for me. He says, what does it all mean? It means that in the deepest mystery of his being, God is an intimate relationship, a fellowship, a community of love. This means that God wants not just this for you and me. God wants to overflow who he is into you. That you bear his image and to be an image bearer of God, which gives you all the dignity bestowed upon you in the world, is that you and I would live in relationship as God does, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's beautiful. To know that God is not just this judge that sits on a throne going, good, bad, good, you know, like, no, like at his core, he longs and lives in relationship within himself and overflowing to you and me. This is why he longs to be with you and me. Number two, we've already said it. You and I, we were made for this kind of relationship, like deep in our core made. And when God says it's not good for you and I to be alone, it's essentially not good that you and I would die 15 years earlier than expected. It's not good that we smoke 15 cigarettes a day. It's not good that we're more prone to dementia. It's not good that our heart rate goes up or we're more prone to heart disease. On and on, all the things when we don't experience companionship, community, and friendship. This is what God meant. It's not good. Physically, not good. Psychologically, not good. Emotionally, not good. In every realm of who you are, in totality as a human being, not good. Because I made you for so much more. So much more. So I'm asking the question. I'm, I'm deep in it. And honestly, sometimes I feel paralyzed by it. What does friendship look like? What does community look like? What's the next step? Well, I'll just give you one, I'll just give you one, one thing, <laughs> one thing I'm thinking about. <laughs> uh, so I used to golf, and I used to golf with my best friend, but then he got really good, and I got really bad. <laughs> and then years go by, we, we all had babies, and, and um, so we went out the other day for the first time, he took me out for my birthday, and uh, it was so bad. I was so horrible. I lost a ball on about every other swing. And I, and I, and I just was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Not my thing, right? He was super gracious. We still had a good time. But I was just sitting with this friendship going, well, what does friendship look like? And I realized, well, you're being done for you, but what does it look like to be a friend to him? And it really hit me. I'm like, I know this sounds kind of superficial. I'm just giving you, like, this is where I'm at. I'm just th these are things I'm thinking about. So I said, well, wouldn't a good friend want to enter into his world and just be maybe in golf terms, just respectable enough that he'd want to ask me back? <laughs> so I came home and I told my wife what I wanted for Christmas. I want to take, and she thought I was going to say, I want to get a um, membership at a country club. And her face went pale. And uh, I said, I want to take golf lessons. And then she smiled. 
She says, why, why do you want to take golf lessons? I said, well, because, my friend, um, I think this is something we could do for the next 10, 20 plus years. And we're already doing this. So what would it look like if I just made overtures, gestures? What if I just started taking golf lessons for my friend? And so that's one little thing that we're going to do. It's not the silver bullet. But I think what it showed me was actually how prone I am to think selfishly in isolation. I'm not good at golf. I don't like golf. Therefore, I won't play golf. But what, is it, what does it look like to actually say, no, how do, I <laughs> how do I make moves towards relationship that otherwise I might not think about? And I want to give you four steps to this. This comes from Larry Crabb, and I know that Roy has offered this before. But the journey from here to here, if this is kind of we're diagnosing where we are, Larry Crabb would say there's, there's kind of four moves from here to here. And the first is simply discovery. And discovery and friendship is just you're just kind of starting out, giving someone access to your life. And then discovery moves to exploration. And exploration, now you're going a little deeper. And I like how we're toggling back and forth because I really want to capture these actual definitions that come from Larry Crabb. So let's pop over there. It says, having a few people warmly and thoughtfully curious about who I am. And then the next step, excuse me, getting a little messy over here is knowing or being known. Now you're being transparent and live with no secrets before one or two people. You got your 2 a.m. person that you can call. They know you, you know them, you were made for that. But there's one more step, and I think it's really important, particularly for this entire discipled life journey, for all the seven journeys. And it's being touched. And this is now where we're living as God lives, meaning that we're not God, hear me carefully, but what's overflowing from you and the vitality and flourishing of your relationship is now touching others. You're now giving it away. You're even giving your friendships away. You're experiencing part of that fullness that Jesus describes, and you're actually just kind of leaking it out wherever you go. It's no longer about you in this stage or this stage. It's now about how do I bless and touch others with the life of God that I'm experiencing in me. These are the four stages, I think, and that they're very helpful. And if we gave you one just kind of next step application, it would be starting point. Like if you're going, what do I do with all this? Well, maybe something's already come up. Maybe there's a friendship you've already thought about. Maybe there's something within your small group or maybe there's something with a coworker. Yes, yes, and yes. Pursue that. Make a plan around that. But if you're going, well, give me one step. Here it is. Go next week to starting point and just begin the journey. Wherever you find yourself, begin the journey. Because the coolest thing ever, as we think about Amy and her sobriety journey, and we think about Buzzy and how God has met him over the years, is that you're not on your own in this journey. That actually the whole message of, of Jesus 
is that when he comes and he brings people to them, he lives here, he goes, look, I call you friends, is what he says. He lives in this friendship place. Jesus did not come with survivalistic instincts, quite the opposite. He upended his life. He didn't fight. He didn't flee. He bore the cross for relationship. And he's like, and I call you friends. For everything I've learned from the Father, I've made known to you. Everything that's true in heaven will be now true on earth in this, this capsule called the relationship that you and I have. What did Jesus do? He came. And there was discovery of who he was. There was exploration and opening up his life. There was a knowing and being known. And ultimately, there was the touching of his life to your life and my life. This is the gospel of Jesus. Relationship at its core, not religion. But a deep desire to know you. To be with you. To dwell in you. So that you know you never walk alone. That you have in Jesus one who says, I have searched you and I have found you. I found you. And when we live from that place, it unlocks our ability to love and live well in friendship and community. Let's pray together. So Jesus we simply ask for each one of us, wherever we find ourselves on this journey from isolation to community, I know there's a step we can each take. It might be an apology. It might be a retracing of steps. It might be a call to courage for that phone call we need to, to make, for that lunch we need to initiate. Would you embolden us? Would you empower us? And God, wherever there is a shame component, wherever there is uh, some haunts going on in our spirits around this, we just pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus would wrap us in the warmth and the weight of heaven. That the steps we take are simply propelled by your goodness and your grace. And we ask this in your name, the one who found us. Amen.